For sure, if you were a single man, you would not speak or touch or look directly at a woman. That went triple if you were a rabbi because it was your job to stay holy and pure. And the quickest way you could become defiled was to come in contact with a Samaritan woman. I'm going to tell you how unclean the women, Samaritan women, were considered. And I would not even quote this except for you to understand how surprising Jesus' behavior, how shocking it is. This was a rabbinic teaching, not making this up, actually from Jesus' day. It said Samaritan women are deemed menstruants from the cradle. Now, if you're young in this room and you have no idea what that word means, ask your mom and dad or Robbie after the service. <laughs> this is how disgusting Samaritan women were to people. And she knew no Jewish rabbi is going to have anything to do with me. There's a line, us, them. And this is a very interesting dynamic about Samaritans in the Bible. And Robbie pointed this out to me this week. When Jesus tells one of his most famous stories, remember the story about the guy who's beaten up and the priest comes by and leaves him there. And the next guy, he's kind of the assistant priest and he doesn't do anything and then the hero of the story comes by. Remember, he's a Samaritan, but not just a Samaritan. He's the what? Good Samaritan. <laughs> there wasn't even such a thing in that culture, a good Samaritan. And then Robert reminded me that there was another story about um, a group of lepers. Remember, ten lepers are healed. Jesus heals all of them, but only one comes back and throws himself at Jesus' feet to say thank you. Remember, he was a Samaritan leper. This is kind of a little bonus thing thrown in here. After Jesus cleanses those ten lepers, he says to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And he uses the plural. You would kind of think Jesus would just say, go, yourself, go show yourself to the priest, as in singular. There are ten of them. They would just go to the nearest priest of Israel. He would say, you're clean, and that would be it. But for some reason, Jesus says, priests. Well, I think the reason is because the Jewish lepers will go to a Jewish priest and the Samaritan leper will go to a Samaritan priest. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, I've cleansed you, but if this is going to stick, listen, I'm not even going to make you change religions. And the Samaritan falls at his feet and loves Jesus. Wow. This association with despised people is so strong that one time folks from Israel, they're trying to insult Jesus, and they answer him and they say, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? They try to think of like the two worst things that I could possibly say about another human being. It'd be like, you're from Polk County and you root for the Gators? <laughs> Sorry. The two worst things that you could say. You're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. And then Jesus has this conversation, the longest conversation he had with anyone in Scripture. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We're going to talk about that later. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Awkward moment. (laughs) Now people have wondered for years, how did Jesus know this? Well, one way could be prophetic knowledge, of course. But there's also an ancient idea that goes way, way back that perhaps Jesus was sitting there at the well and there was a guy from the village maybe next to him and when he saw this woman coming, he kind of leaned over to Jesus and said, hey buddy, be careful she doesn't become number six or you don't become number six. We don't know for sure. doesn't really matter. Jesus just kind of had a way of doing that. But here's the thing about this woman and this is important. Everybody has a story. I do not know what this woman dreamed about when she was a little girl, but I can guarantee you she did not dream about cycling through five marriages. It's very interesting in the ancient world. A woman did not have the right to initiate divorce. And we always think of this woman as kind of like scandalous, like she's some kind of, you know, loose woman. I don't really think so. I think she was mostly just a victim. I think over, over, over and over in her life, she had heard a man make a promise to her and then later say, nope, I don't want you. 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 And now she's with a man who likely will not even marry her, yet this man, Jesus, treats her with such dignity. And this conversation, unbelievable as it is, continues. She says, sir... I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. That's where the Samaritans worshipped. They didn't go to Jerusalem. She says, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So she kind of gets in a little, you know, kind of uh, theological disagreement with Jesus. Like, we're not the same. You know, you, you worship here, I worship here, etc. And Jesus looks at her and he sees somebody and he sees something in her. And he says, yet a time is coming... And has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now why has that time come? He says, yet the the time is coming and has now come. The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. See, the Samaritans believed in the Messiah too. Just kind of a different language for it. And Jesus' answer is so powerful. Jesus just looks at this woman and he says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Wow. He offers himself to this woman. You see, this isn't a boy meets girl story. This is a rabbi meets girl story. This is a Messiah meets girl story. This is a savior meets girl story. And just then... The disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now listen, we're going to stop and leave the woman and the story kind of here. Robbie's going to pick it up next week. 
But we have to talk for just a moment before we close about what Jesus sees when he looks at somebody. The disciples look at her and all they saw was somebody who was wrong. Jesus looks at her and all he sees is somebody who is loved. And here's the thing. Being right puts me on the opposite side of people I disagree with. Love puts me on the same side as people I disagree with. Jesus would look at people and it was the craziest thing, but everybody he looked at had a story. And everybody that you look at, friends, has a story. And they have a need, and that need is Jesus. And Jesus, 2,000 years later, is still meeting people at wells. There's an old tradition, some of you will know, that uh, people say that St. Peter guards the gate to heaven. And that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is kind of the main administrator of heaven. And one day, Paul, or excuse me, Peter is complaining to Paul that there are more people in heaven than he's letting through the gate. He can't figure out what's going on. And a couple of days later, Paul comes running to Peter and he says, I figured out the problem. At night, Jesus is sneaking people over the wall. <laughs> and that's just Jesus. Sinful people, Samaritan people, Roman people, centurion people, soldier people, poor people, short people, prostitute people, tax collector people, lame people, deaf people, leper people. Listen, even when he's dying on the cross, there's one more person, a thief on a cross being crucified. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, dad, I have one more I need to throw over the wall. What does this have to do with Oasis? What does this have to do with 20 years? It has everything to do with it. You see, this well, this well represents what it means to be a Jesus church. Let me explain. Lately, I've been reading a story about Australia, the continent of Australia. And then Australia, they have these huge, huge cattle ranches. And the cattle ranchers have had to figure out, what's a way that we can keep all the cattle on the ranch? Now, basically, there are two ways of doing this. This is very interesting. They either can build a fence all the way around the outside of the property. And we're talking about huge acreage here. They can build a fence around the property or they can dig a well. And they want to keep the cattle on the property, and there are two ways to do it. Build a fence and say you can't go beyond these boundaries. Or they dig a well and they invite the cattle to say, stay close to the source of life. Let me make this clear. There's a lot of people in our day who are building fences. Nothing's really changed, though, because in Jesus' day, the rabbis would actually talk about building fences around the Torah. They'll say things like, you can't be defiled necessarily by coming in contact with a Samaritan, by seeing a Samaritan, but if you get near one of them, especially a woman, you might touch her accidentally and then you would be defiled. So they would actually figure out ways. How many feet would you have to stand away from someone to make sure that you didn't touch them even accidentally? They'd build fences around the Torah. They'd have rules for the rules. 
And Jesus comes along and he says, let me redefine this for you. Jesus said, it's not when somebody touches you from the outside. It's what happens on the inside. It's about how clean the well is. I want to make this clear. Jesus was not a fence builder. Jesus was a well digger. I have come to give you water that you have been thirsting for, craving for your whole life. I have come to give you a new kind of life, a life that is not dying from thirst every day. So churches, and this is what we're deciding right now as a culture, are we going to build fences or are we going to dig wells? Now let me say this. Some churches have decided to build fences. They say, what are certain behaviors or beliefs where we can figure out who's not one of us? I'll be personal for a moment. I grew up in a great Pentecostal church. Robin grew up in a wonderful Baptist church. We are both very grateful for both of those experiences. They helped us in a lot of ways. But we often, in those churches, had a way of building fences. If you smoked, you're on the other side of the fence. If you would drink, you're on the other side of the fence. If you went to a movie, you're on the other side of the fence. Listen, people in the church might have wanted to cross the fence. They might even do it in their heart, but they would never let anybody else know they were doing it. By the way, do you know the difference between a Presbyterian and a Baptist? A Baptist will not wave back at you at the liquor store. (laughs) I can't wait to tell my mother-in-law that joke. (laughs) Listen, the Christian church has become wonderful at building fences. Here's what we do. We say all sin is equal in the eyes of God. We say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We say that we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. But there is a total disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live our lives. Here's what we do. Here's what we do. We may not do it outwardly, but we do it inwardly all the time. We put sin in different categories. We put people then in different categories. We take sin like lying about our kids' ages so they can get another free year at Disney World. Or being a glutton at the dinner table, we put that into one little pot. And then we take sins like cheating on our taxes or lying to our spouse, and we put those in another little pot. And then we get sins like robbery and drug use and other felony offenses, and we throw them into a third pot. And then we get to the last pot, and we reserve that bad boy for the really rotten people. This is murderers and rapists and sexual deviants and idolaters and racists and the like. And what we do is we forget that when we separate people into groups and we give them a label, we forget that we have a God that puts them in one huge pot and he says, this is just humanity. What is at the heart of fence building, friends, is called otherness. Otherness is how I deal and relate to someone of different languages, culture, gender, color, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic background. One author who was originally from the nation of Croatia said it like this. He said, at the core of human sin is the desire to exclude people. We exclude exclude people from our lives or at least from our hearts. He says, and when we do that, we forget this. We forget that God could have excluded us. He could have put us in the really, really bad category, but he didn't. 
He threw open the doors of his kingdom and he said, you know what, you come in and you come in and you come in and you come in. And the question for today, after 20 years, is why would we ever shut the door and build the fence to keep people from coming to an oasis? Let me put it this way. If all we do is love the lovable, do we get a bonus? Jesus said anybody can do that. Real love, friends, says I have decided, I have made a conscious choice to treat people, rich people, poor people, attractive people, unattractive people, celebrities, nobodies, my spouse, my family, my boss, my employee, other races, Republicans, Democrats, people whose lifestyle I do not agree with and does not square with the Bible. I have decided to treat them as better than myself because that's how my God treats me. So I'll say this, when we are truly loving like Jesus, we will start including in our circle of love the same kinds of people that Jesus would include. If you want to know if you're really loving, that is the test. And let me tell you the quickest way you can tear a fence down. There's no question in my mind this is true. We start tearing fences down by not making judgments or coming to conclusions about people that we don't really know. <laughs> practically speaking, practically speaking, I do not need to assume that all Muslims are radical terrorists when I do not know one single Muslim. I do not need to talk in condescending fashion about the younger generation with all their tattoos and piercings when I do not have one friend that has one tattoo or piercing. I don't need to make judgments about someone who is struggling with addiction over and over again when I've never taken time to sit down and talk about what's going on in their world. And I'm not talking about validating or endorsing someone's mistake and saying, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. I'm not saying that. What I'm talking about is the hypocrisy of saying we love people when we've never even had a cup of coffee with them. That is fence building. That is not well digging. I'll close with this. And then we get a chance to respond. There's a poem. It is probably one of my favorite poems of all time. It was written by the author Robert Frost many years ago. I mentioned it to you several years ago, but it starts with these words. He says, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. And the poem is written as if by a farmer, and this farmer writes about how for he and the farmer on the neighboring farm, every spring they go out to check the wall that divides them. And every spring they find the strangest thing that a few stones have fallen down and that the fence, the wall, needs to be repaired. And Frost writes in this poem, it's as if some force in nature doesn't like the wall being there. He says it's like something is conspiring against it. <laughs> so they keep building the wall back up, but something keeps tearing the wall back down. He says we set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, and maybe it's spring, he says, but something inside me asks, why do we need the wall? And his neighbor offers this classic line, good fences make good neighbors. 
But Frost says that's true where there's cows, but there are no cows here. He says, before I'd build a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling out and what I was walling in. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. I'm going to tell you what the force is. I'm going to tell you what's conspiring against building walls in this culture. It is love. The love of Jesus is fighting to tear down every wall. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Please listen to this and then I'll close. Jesus right now, when he left this earth, he said, listen, I'm going to the Father and in my Father's house are many rooms. Remember, hospitality is making space for people you don't have to make space for. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, I'm making space for you. For that reason, friends, we never want to be a fence-building church. When somebody asks you this week, listen, what kind of people do you go to church with? Just tell them, listen, everybody in our church, they're well diggers. <laughs> Everybody's a well digger. You have any fence builders? Nope, no fence builders, but we got tons of well diggers. That is who we are. That is who we have tried to be for 20 years. And with God's help, that's who I hope we'll be for the next gazillion years. The fundamental conviction that everybody's welcome.